Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Hello again, and welcome back. We'll be hearing part five of The Golden Sparrow, a musical escape room retold in a fictional uh, retelling. I hope you're enjoying this, and without further ado, Part 5. I did not return to 25 Franklin Lane for four weeks. I called Janine during that time to ask if she had ever heard any reports of strange music in the building. She assured me that she had never heard it. As to reports from prior tenants, there was no record of complaints, although that might explain why leases were short and the building never really became a regular commercial presence in the area. Was it haunted? After I gathered my wits from shock in Franklin's office, I beheld my animal fear combat the awareness of the financial benefits associated with a haunted place. So shocked was I by my encounter with the dark final hours of Mr. Franklin on earth that I had completely forgotten to pursue Joe to ask him about the strange coincidence between the pen I had taken from the closing transaction at his desk in the bank and the symbol on the back of Mr. Franklin's desk. It was almost ten days after I had fled the building that I remembered to inquire at the bank. My fear had been waning, although I had been plagued by the memory of the music I had heard. It hung in my imagination, and unless I made an effort to concentrate on more prosaic matters, the sound would eventually creep unnoticed into the working of my inner person. It wasn't unpleasant but it always presented to my conscious mind a sense that it was searching for a resolution. It's difficult to explain. It was dissonant in a way that did not sound malignant. Instead, it gave the impression of being disorganized. It did not plague me so much as it insistently reminded me that it existed. It was in an effort to push it out of my mind that I redirected my attention to the odd symbol that connected Franklin's office with Prairie Home State Bank. I called Joe, and after exchanging verbal courtesies, I moved to the purpose of my call. Joe, I was curious about something that you might be able to clarify. Happy to help if I can. I don't really know much about old buildings. I specialize in paperwork, but shoot. Well, this will seem an odd question, but please humor me for a moment. When we did the paperwork, You had everything laid out for the closing on your desk, right? The documents, notary stamp, the pens. Yes, well, you had the paperwork in advance, so if there was any irregularity, I'm not calling about the documents. I'd like to know about the pens. The pens? There is a symbol that looks like a sextant. You know, like what old-time sailors used to navigate at night. On the pens. The pen I took from the closing that was in my pocket, had that symbol. Is that a bank pen? I don't really know what you mean. We have promotional pens at the teller window that have our bank logo and address, a prairie house. We are a reputable institution, so if the pen had a sex act on it, I can assure you it isn't from us. Not a sex act, a sextant. It has a little telescope and some lenses and plates of metal. On a pen? The logo was a sextant. Never mind what it looked like. Where did you get the pen? 
I keep a lot of pens at my desk, and I try to have quality ones for business. The bank promotional pens are kind of cheap, and they never make it all the way through the signings. So, you were saying that you gave me a pen with an unusual symbol that was not related to the bank in any way? Sir, I try to make my clients comfortable and to do what I can to make the closing process efficient and hassle-free. Why does it matter what was on the pen? Because the picture on the pen is the same symbol that appears embedded in the back of Elias Franklin's desk. I'm not sure I'm following you. There's a desk in one of the rooms at 25 Franklin Lane that has a symbol. I stopped as I realized that this discussion was starting to descend into farce. If he knew about the symbol, he wasn't going to admit it. So, you have no knowledge of this pen then? I do a lot of closings with a lot of people, and I lose a lot of pens in the process. I gain some, too. If I had such a pen, it was probably left behind from a different client. I'm sure it's a coincidence. Is there anything else I can help you with today, sir? No. As you have not delivered help with my primary matter, I think I am all set. Thanks for calling Prairie Home State Bank. Have a nice day. I did gain one small advantage from my conversation with Joe. It had taken my mind off of Franklin's last words and the haunting music that ornamented them in my memory. I stayed in a peak of frustration for a few hours, ruminating on the question of whether Joe knew more than he would admit or if I was really overreacting to a routine coincidence. In any event, my mind returned to Franklin's office. I knew I couldn't avoid it forever, as I was now the proud owner of the building and all of the property within. After my futile investigation into the lineage of the pen that now lay on the floor at 25 Franklin Lane, I spent a few more weeks attempting to research any mentions of the building or of a lodge at the turn of the 20th century in Fort Collins that might be the lodge of which Franklin had apparently died in service. My searches did not yield anything. It appeared that this lodge had somehow existed outside of documented history save for the elusive entries in Mr. Franklin's personal records. It was exactly one month after I had so abruptly vacated my property that I found myself standing before the front door waiting for a representative of Innovative Interiors LLC to arrive. I had made several calls to various contractors in the days prior to taking ownership of the building. Those calls were finally beginning to materialize into the consultations with various contractors to perform the improvements to the interior that would be required before I could present units to potential renters. If I hadn't unwittingly forced myself to return based upon a commitment I had made before that fateful evening, I'm not sure that I would have gone back. But I stood there as Janice introduced herself, and we entered the building together. It was an hour filled with a divide between our discussions about various interior flourishes and a subconscious straining to detect the unwelcome recognition of disembodied music. The time was filled exclusively with the former, and by the time our walkthrough completed, I was starting to become convinced that I had been hallucinating under the spell cast by Franklin's journal. We left the building together, and although I was starting to relax in the building, I decided that I would not press my luck. 
I went and grabbed an extended lunch in an Old Town pub nearby while I waited for my next meeting that afternoon with a contractor who was going to renovate the restrooms in the building. I returned to the building right as Mr. Jacob Rentley of the eponymous Big Jake's Contracting pulled up in the front of 25 Franklin. As with Janice, I led Big Jake through the building to establish the terms and scope of the project. By this point in the afternoon, I had largely forgotten my earlier fears and dismissed the episode as the product of an overwrought imagination. We visited each floor and again walked through all the empty rooms except for Franklin's office. I hadn't planned to have any work done there until after the rest of the building had been updated. But there was a part of me that wanted another soul to enter the office with me and help me complete my journey from my earlier irrationality to high-functioning objectivity. Jake followed me into the room and continued the unbroken monologue with which he had regaled me for the last 45 minutes. This is one of the last original buildings in town that hasn't really been updated. I always wondered how it resisted all these years. Yeah, I'm still trying to understand the history here a bit better. Wow, look at this. Has this office been closed off since old man Franklin owned it? I think so. I have been, look at that desk, an Armstrong. Jake had no compunction about seizing the initiative in a conversation. What a beauty. That would have cost someone a small fortune back in the day. Good thing Franklin had a big one. At this statement, Jake betrayed his admiration for his own cleverness by letting out a boisterous chortle. Uh, yes, it has really stayed. That inlaid wood is something special, hard to do. I heard that these desks were always custom-built. Is that a sextant? Jake was an equal opportunity interrupter, and he did not discriminate on behalf of even his own incomplete utterances. I wonder if old Franklin was a member of the lodge. What did you say? Well, that symbol. It looks just like one that's engraved into the firehouse on Meldrum. You've seen that symbol somewhere else in town? At the firehouse on Meldrum. Well, it's a firehouse now. It used to be the meeting hall for the Society for Mental Cartography. All the bankers and such in Fort Collins used to be members. My dad was a member back in the 50s. Seems it fell out of fashion, and the chapter folded in the late 1980s. My dad called it the Lodge, although he only joined because it was good for business. After he died a few years ago, I found some old trinkets and a funny cap from the Lodge. They all had that symbol on them. The Society for Mental Cartography? Yep. Not sure what they were focused on, and Dad was only there for a short time. I don't think it brought in as much business as he thought it would. Did he ever tell you what they did in their meetings? He always said it was mostly an excuse to smoke cigars and get drunk away from the wives. He did mention that they were supposedly guardians of some ancient knowledge or something, but he never heard anything interesting. Meetings were all calling to order and ritual chanting and serving on the social committee. You said it's gone now? I don't know. Dad only belonged for about a year when I was a little kid. The building was empty for about five years before it got donated to the city. Like I said, it's a firehouse now. Well, I think I've seen what I need to see. I'll write up a proposal for you and send it over later this week. Sure. Right. Thanks. Great. Big Jake started out the door and turned back to face me, saying, if you decide you don't want any of the stuff in this office, I'll be happy to take it out of here at no charge. My brother runs an antique store on Highway 287, 
and I'd sure he'd be happy to take it. I followed him out of the building and watched him get into his truck. It was a marvel of physics that a body of that size could navigate its way into a compact cab. I turned and headed back into the building, closing the front door behind me. It was about 3 p.m., and sunlight flooded into the space through the windows to the west. I went up to Franklin's office, steeped in contemplation of the unexpected discovery I had just made through the unwitting oracle that was Big Jake. Walking around to the front of the desk, all the papers, and Franklin's journal lay precisely where I had left them in haste a month prior. Even with the warmth of the sun filling the room, I felt a sudden resurgence of anxiety as I looked at the journal. I had found it as a direct consequence of my discovery of the symbol on the back of the desk that was identical to the one on the pen from the bank. This had a powerful sense of purpose that I couldn't quite understand. Was the Society of Mental Cartography still active in Fort Collins? Jake had mentioned bankers. I knew that Prairie Home State Bank dated back to the 1880s. Was Joe, the banker, lying to me about the symbol? The bank, or more accurately Joe, had gone to great lengths to help me secure the financing I needed. I began to suspect that this was not simply neighborly charity. Was the society, or the lodge, still at work in my community? The idea that you are somehow caught in a contrivance of events over which you have no control is a deeply unsettling thought. Here I sat in an office that had been closed for more than 100 years, going through the personal effects of a town father who had died in unexpected circumstances. I had earned ownership of this building and its contents through a negotiation with a third party that started to seem more and more spurious. And I had just learned that a supposedly disbanded secret society that was central to the life and death of the previous occupant of this office might somehow be connected to the business deal that put me in possession of the historic 25 Franklin Lane. It doesn't matter how skeptical or rational you may think you are. If you were faced with this strange series of seemingly connected events, you would also begin to feel like a fly that had been romanced by the spider into her web. I sat into the chair and was lost in thought as I started fiddling with the various items that sat upon the desk. I picked through the old newspaper articles, opened the box with the brass plate with the number and symbols. I found my way to the box of darkly stained hardwood rods. As I steeped in the sheer weight of circumstance that engulfed me, I took a rod and examined it more closely. It was at this point I noticed a detail that had previously escaped me. On the end of each rod, whose cross-sections were square, there was a symbol engraved. The symbol roughly matched the patterns on the brass plate, and they seemed related to the length of the rod. I had thought it was one of those executive toys that the rich and powerful might have on their desk to demonstrate the extent of their wealth, and the free time for such trifles that it bought them. Perhaps it was only that, but I started to wonder if there was a connection between those symbols, the lengths of the rods, and printed patterns of boxes and lines that I had observed on the brass plate in the desk. Looking around the room, my eyes fell on the peculiar device that hung on the wall to the left of the wardrobe that I still had not been able to open. Staring at the device, 
with its bell and hand crank and track, I suddenly realized that the rods in my right hand might be laid into the track on the device. I took one, went to the device, and inserted it into the track. I half expected the building to tremble or the music to begin, but nothing happened except that the rod lay perfectly there as if it was made to be inserted into this machine. The wood of the rods and the paneling on the device were the same, and it was now obvious to me that the rods were designed to be inserted into this track. However, there were many more rods in the box than would fit into the track when placed end to end, and I had the thought that perhaps the rods were somehow a means by which someone had encoded a cipher. I suspected that the right combination of rods in this machine might function something like a key in a lock, except this was unlike any lock I had ever encountered. Of the roughly 30 rods in the box, there was a distribution of various lengths, as I previously noted. Upon closer inspection, the rods seemed to be in stepped intervals of lengths that were multiples of the cross-section. So, there were perfect cubes which were length one, and a few rods that were twice as long, giving a length of two. The longest of the rods was a single one that was eight units long. This realization opened up the mystery for me. The rods were like numbers, and the trick was to have a sequence of numbers that would match the lock. This was a straightforward observation that did little to advance my efforts to find the code. I tried various combinations of rods whose total length filled the tray on the machine from left to right. None of the combinations had any effect. I thought that perhaps the combination of rods in the tray with a turn of the wheel might yield some insight. When I cranked the wheel, a hidden carriage would move along the base of the track and push the rods along. When I cranked it clockwise, they would move right. Counterclockwise, they would travel left. It was counterclockwise that brought the rods to pass in the track behind the bell which obscured the leftmost end. Passing the bell, the rods would cause it to ring a single time when the leftmost edge first passed through. Hopefully, I filled the track with rods of different lengths. This had the curious effect of ringing the bell with spacing between the rings that exactly corresponded to the distance between the left edges. If I ran the rods through from right to left across the bell, the bell would be rung in a rhythmic sort of chiming. This reminded me of watching music boxes as the raised bumps on the wheel would travel around to pluck the metal bars that were shaped to rest upon the cylinder in the middle. That's when it struck me that this lock was a sort of musical lock. However, unlike a music box, this lock only produced the rhythmic elements and not the melodic ones. A breakthrough, to be sure, but I could stand all day and try random combinations with no hope of success. I quickly resigned myself to failure if I should continue to guess. I either needed a code or a clue, as the only other option was outrageous good luck. I turned my back to the device to face the room and made a deep inspection of what I could see from where I stood. Perhaps I had missed a clue in the desk. Maybe one of the inscrutable tomes on the bookshelf contained the answer. The photo of the all-girls zither band? Truthfully, I had absolutely no good ideas about what would open the lock. I looked at the door, and there sat the coat stand. The sight of Franklin's coat and hat by the door stirred something in me. 
there had been something about them that might hold the clue I sought. An image of Franklin face down in the snow passed through my mind, and I remembered that his frock coat, still hanging on the stand, had previously had a paper in the breast pocket. I had removed the paper when I was first exploring this strange room and set it on the desk. I walked over and grabbed it. It had a string of filled-in squares that each had a thin vertical line along the side. Some of these were seemingly grouped by thicker horizontal lines across the top. I finally recognized this as a rhythm. I wondered at the ingenuity of such a puzzle as I walked over and attempted to place rods that reflected the spacing of the squares. This was difficult as I didn't know which part of the paper was up and which was down. I tried different combinations for about 20 minutes before the carvings on the end of the rods again asserted themselves to my attention, and I realized that each rod had the image of a symbol that was similar to those on the page. In the waning afternoon sun, I strained to see them clearly, but after another few minutes of trial and error, I had finally laid out a sequence of rods of differing lengths in the tray to match the paper. I reached for the crank and, turning it, sent the rods past the bell with the pleasant result of a rhythmic tintinabulation that resembled something more organized than my previous futile efforts. As the bell sang its silver brogue, I heard a distinctive click to my immediate right. Some mechanism had operated within the wardrobe, and I had activated some long dormant machinery that would allow me to finally look inside the last closed chamber in the entire building. But my delight quickly melted into terror as two more realities imposed themselves upon me. First, I realized that the office door which had been halfway open just moments before, had closed with a heavy thud at exactly the moment the wardrobe mechanism had made its gentle sound of affirmation. Second, I now faintly heard the unwelcome return of the sound of music. And that concludes part five of The Golden Sparrow. Join me next time for part six. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at Gustav Hoyer, Composer Impresario, or on Twitter, and you can also email me at salutations at gustavhoyer.com. I'd love to hear from you. I create this podcast to share my love of music, and your feedback helps me improve it. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time.